Acts chapter 20, beginning of verse 28. This is God's word. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What is the biggest danger threatening the church? I suggest that if you were to ask five Christians from five different churches, you would get about a dozen answers. And yes, I know math, and, but I also know people. And the idea of so many different answers that so many people might have as to the greatest danger threatening the church is uh, quite numerous. Some think that it's theological liberalism, and others think that it's theological orthodoxy. Some think that the problem with the church is money or property, whether it is the excess of it or the lack of it. Some blame social fads or the world. Other, others bl bl blame depravity or sin. An easy solution and a correct one, but rather less precise explanation. And yet, what does Paul identify as the problems facing the church, specifically the church in Ephesus? And interesting, I think that it, you find that it isn't the things outside the church necessarily that he identifies, but that which is within. The church often is its own worst enemy and not from the places that we would assume dangers would arise. Paul speaks to church leadership. He warns against the dangers that threaten elders and pastors. Now, it may be tempting for you who are here that aren't elders or pastors uh, as he warns them to uh, sit back and listen with the eye of judging those who are in church leadership or, in, or considering criteria for eldership, but I would suggest that it is only a part of this passage purpose. I encourage you to see how these elements also appear in the lives of ordinary church members, that none of us is exempt from the sins and danger and danger of threatening the church, for, the church, for Satan would like to turn any of us into a stumbling block for God's people. Paul lists two activities for the elders to pursue in aid of preventing the dangers threatening the church in Ephesus. And while he perhaps has prophetic knowledge of the particular dangers facing the church in Ephesus, his warnings and encouragement indeed apply to all of us. Let us therefore consider these two activities. Paul encourages the elders to beware and to be giving, to beware and to be giving. Dangers abound against the church in this environment where the, where the world, the flesh, and the devil all target God's people. And Paul wants the elders to show vigilance against many avenues uh, from which attack may arise. 
In this part, we see the motivation for such vigilance, the minister requiring such vigilance, and the method of such vigilance. Hogg begins with the motive for vigilance. Why is it that we ought to be on our guard? Or why is it especially that the elders are to be on our guard? Look at verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. We see the command that focuses on the vigilance of the elders for their own souls and for the members of the church. As members, therefore, I encourage you to remember to pray for your elders that the Lord would keep them from the evil one and give them vigilance vigilance over their own soul. But this self-vigilance that the elders are to show over their own souls is for the benefit of the church. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has placed the elders in their office for the benefit of the church, notably to feed it, to feed the church of God. There is benefit here. The care and feeding of the church ought to motivate vigilance over ourselves and over one another. There's more to it there because it's not just this uh, a discrete body of people, but this people has value uh, to God as it is God who has purchased these people with his own blood. One brief point here is before we go on, some commentators have tried to reread the final phrase in order to avoid the difficult wording of the pronoun his uh, being connected to the antecedent God. The church of God, which he, he hath purchased with his own blood. The argument here against a re- different reading is that God does not have blood, and therefore this cannot be uh, uh, assumed to be, uh, be a verse that says that he does. And yet that argument diminishes the doctrine of the deity of Jesus, who we unabashedly affirm is God. And the Westminster Confession of Faith rightly uses this verse in its defense of the, this kind of use of language in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, section 7, but I'll leave that to your own reading. As we go on, what threat does Paul foresee? Why is he warning the elders to be vigilant? What is the menace that threatens the church? Look at verse 29. For this I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. When Paul says this, this statement seems to me to voice more than mere conjecture, more than Paul's generalized statement that this, uh, this threat against the church of wolves entering into it is something that the church throughout all of its ages will have to deal with, although that is certainly true. It seems to me, though, that his statement here is rather more pointed, that he has some prophetic insight that there are wolves that are about uh, to come into the church to threaten it. Now, whether he has uh, knowledge of this or uh, through divine knowledge of the Holy Spirit or through uh, information receives, he, I do not know, and yet we can see the truth of what he is saying, that, th- that these uh, wolves are certainly a perennial danger to the church. Notice also his description of them. These wolves have no pity. I know that grievous wolves shall entering, not sparing the flock. 
They will attack, they will tear, they will threaten, they will destroy as much as possible. They are indiscriminate. And he uses this, uh, this image to remind us that there is no negotiation or compromise regarding this threat. You do not sit down with a wolf that is about to attack the sheep and say to him, come now, let us reason together. Let's see if we can't uh, agree to some compromise. If I throw you a little sheep, will you go away? No, that is not the way that you deal with a wolf. And and besides, to deter the eldership from having a too high a view of their own Uh, impenetrability to this activity look at verse 30 and also your own selves shall and also of your own selves shall men arise seeking to seeking speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them notice the wolves that the wolves seem to often arise from the membership but that does not exclude the members the elders themselves from being tempted by this wile of satan Now, Paul doesn't blatantly mention what is motivating these wolves. What is driving these wolves to do this kind of uh, rapacious activity? And yet, there is a suggestion of their motivation here. Look at verse 30 again. Speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them, twisting the scriptures in order to develop a following. The acquisition of disciples to themselves just hubris, the desire for a following, the attraction of fame, drawing people into the sin and danger. Now these wolves are there to uh, ravage the flock and persuade, you know, two, if you know, know pack behavior and how threats work, there's kind of two ways that it's happened. They may just come in there to destroy and to rip and to tear in kind of a blind fury, but if they're smarter, then they might try to uh, capture and divide the flock and get some uh, isolated where they can devour them. And I think it's important to understand that often those who are and act wolfishly do not uh, arise immediately, but Satan tempts them to this through a process. It's very easy to find an idea, a cause, an interpretation, and usur- and usurp the truth for personality. We can advance an idea, and that idea may be true, but we may then advance the idea because that idea advances us and not the truth, not the glory of God. We may come upon a doctrine that we find to be fascinating and we read about it and it becomes all that we think about and we start talking to people about it. And so all of a sudden we discover we've become a wolf. We're disturbing the peace of the church. We're trying to gather a a group to our own side and bring division. We do it because we we began convincing ourselves that this was the truth that people need to understand. And suddenly we find it, we are actually liking the fact that people are listening to us and that we have a following. And that progression and that process can be so hidden that we cannot even see it until it has worked its ugly result. And that process probably is much more attractive to elders and to leadership than it may be to ordinary people, but I have seen it in both cases. I've seen this work itself out both in those who are in leadership, church leadership and those who are just members. 
this progression from idea to engagement to division. Thus, Paul advances what may be the only solution to the danger. We've seen the motivation for vigilance. We've seen the menace that threatens. And here, Paul refers them to the solution. Look at verse 31. Therefore, watch and remember by the spaces three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. In remembering, it is both the doctrine that Paul taught and the way in which he taught it. I suggest that the core of what Paul is talking about is the teaching of the gospel, the importance of the church, the centrality of Christ, the importance of unity. And his own example is here as he talks about his own tears, as he mentions that in terms of the care that is evident in his life, the care that was evident in his life toward the church in Ephesus and his own humble uh, aspect before them. The Reformed community is no stranger to strident views on doctrine and theology. Even the OPC itself, uh, in its earliest days, knew division from people gathering around certain esoteric ideas. And I can say this because I hold some of these esoteric ideas. Uh, We had a division. There was a group of people who left because... Uh, they were convinced that premillennial eschatology was the only biblically uh, appropriate view to take. I kind of am a fan of historic premill eschatology, if you know me. And yet I would never divide over that issue. And yet these people did. And it shows us that this, our community has a lot of strong-minded people, strong views on doctrine and theology. But it is also no stranger to strong personalities who often coalesce around such doctrine. And too often these strong personalities become more significant than the truth, more significant than the gospel, more significant than Christ. I am pleased to be the pastor of this church, and yet I don't want to form disciples of me. That horrifies me more than I could say. There would be little clones around me going around preaching Warrenism or Bennettism, such as just, you don't do that. That's, that's a bad thing to do. Rather, I minister, and I think all ministers ought to minister, to make disciples of Christ, because that's the Great Commission. Go out and make disciples, Jesus told his twelve. And disciples weren't to be disciples of the disciples, they were to be disciples of Jesus. Follow Christ and disagree with me, I don't mind. I prefer if if you didn't keep on telling me you disagreed with me, it's kind of a downer, but disagreement with me is not the issue, it's agreement with Christ. Something has to matter more to us than our reputation, our position, our fame, or our being proved right. Let me make one further point, that the truth alone isn't enough. We can, I've seen so many people who, because of their dedication to the truth, have caused division. We proclaim the truth in love, and Satan tempts us to use truth like a cudgel to assume that we have it and our, have it and our brothers and sisters don't. Dedication to the truth also requires humility. Because the truth is that we are not smart enough to know everything that God has revealed. 
Truth means being humble enough to admit the possibility of error in our thinking because that is the truth. And unless we can have the humility to admit this, we cannot claim faithfulness to the truth, for this is the inconvenient truth we least want to acknowledge. We are to beware, but secondly, we are to be giving. In light of the danger, we can understand the first activity that Paul encourages the elders to practice. But the second may strike us as rather unusual. After the, the threat and the, the kind of things that Paul's been telling the, the elders of Ephesus, he comes to the end and we're like, why are you saying this? What does this have to do with what you have been saying before? And yet there is a reason here. We see the motivation for giving, the model of giving, and the mediator of giving. Paul begins this final section by reminding the elders of what they have already received. Look at verse 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. Paul entrusts the welfare of the elders and of the church, not to the strength of man, not to the strength of the elders themselves, but to Almighty God. He does this because he knows the character of God, not just of his power, but also to his grace, his mercy, and the blessings he has already given to the church and the elders. He's given the church his word. To this word, he entrusts the welfare of the church because that word is able to build them up and to give them an inheritance. The word of God will guard the hearts of those who habitually use it. And it reminds them of their inheritance in Christ. And likely this inheritance idea functions as a springboard for the rest of the charge. It provides the most direct motivation for their giving. The Bible speaks of the motive of Jesus who gave so much to us uh, that we ought to give to others. But here, the idea of how much we have to inherit our heavenly reward gives us the, the uh, motivation to give now. We who inherit riches beyond measure in the new heavens and new earth ought not to cling to what is ours in the present. And Paul presents himself as a model of this mindset in verse 33. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. I think that it's good to see this as a model for us rather than Paul trying to justify himself or make himself feel uh, better about himself because we've already dealt with him and the elders uh, vindicating him as having fulfilled his duty to him. And this is not kind of a reopening of that idea, but going forward, it is a suggestion of how they are, ought to act themselves. He has not shown himself covetous of anyone's stuff in Ephesus. And this lack of uh, ministry out of personal enrichment appears in his own efforts. Look at verse 34. Hey, you, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered to, into my necessities and to them that were with me. This is a curious verse, for some have read it to indicate that Paul uh, again worked as a tent maker or a leather worker during his tenure in Ephesus, and this is certainly possible. We know at some point uh, that his fellow tent makers from Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla, lived in Ephesus. In fact, they left Corinth with Paul and came to Ephesus at the end of the second missionary journey. We know that they were there when Apollos came uh, to Ephesus while, while, uh, while Paul was on his uh, third missionary journey, making his way to Ephesus. Further, and, and yet, uh, we know we can find nothing about him uh, exercising this gift or doing this work 
during the third missionary journey. With all of the information about Paul's time in Ephesus, uh, there's no indication that he actually became a tent maker again. And we would think that if it was mentioned in Corinth, it probably ought to be mentioned in Ephesus as well. Further, we cannot be certain that Priscilla and Aquila, those with whom he worked, uh, actually remained in Ephesus until Paul reached that city during his third missionary journey. Paul's language may only indicate that he provided for himself and his fellow ministers without burdening the church in Ephesus. If so, support from his home churches, those of Galatia and Macedonia and possibly Achaia, may have provided for the needs of his mission team in Ephesus. And maybe he supplemented that income or needed to supplement that income uh, by working himself. Certainly, we cannot accuse Paul of uh, slackness in his ministry as he, pre- as he spoke and taught it day by day, every day, out of the school of Tyrannus. We have previously speculated that Paul's modest plans uh, for a second missionary journey may have arisen from his desire not to travel too far from his known means of support. And Ephesus sits, if you will, in the center of all the cities and of the churches that he has established during the first two missionary journeys. But however we decide that question, Paul's meaning is crystal clear. Paul did not minister to enrich himself. Paul did not take from the church at Ephesus. Paul gave to them. Now, Paul returns to his training of the church in verse 35. And I I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I disagree with many modern translations that somehow take an accusative in this verse for a dative, uh, which reads, I have uh, all things I have showed in all things I have showed you how to how laboring you ought to support the weak is how many modern translations take it. But I think if you look at the Greek, uh, the, it should be read as is read here in the authorized version. I have showed you all things. If you look at the Greek and you look at understand what the grammar of the words, this is what it says. I have showed you all things. Paul has showed the elders everything they needed to see in order to do the work to do the hard work of supporting the weak. I don't take this expression to refer just to materially or physically impoverished people, although they are certainly a part of those to whom giving ought to be done, but rather the word's breadth suggests the elders are to give all to all those who have left, who have need, whether that need be physical, spiritual, mental, or emotional. It broadens our idea of what giving is and uh, the attitude that he is encouraging in this. Paul's model here is not to talk about exactly how you get what you get to live on. It is whether you are living your life in in an attitude of giving or receiving. And he is urging us to live the one over the other, following the example of the Lord Jesus who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. These words aren't found in any of the Gospels, and yet they can hardly not be attributed to Christ, as Paul, the Apostle of Christ, can certainly say them. My friend, this principle is based upon the model of Jesus himself, for we can never give more than he gave, for he gave his life. We who deserve nothing but death and hell cannot imagine what it is that he gave. 
We could not contribute anything to our salvation except the sin from which God must set us free. And he has set his people free through Jesus. Jesus, who is God, made man. Jesus, who lived a perfect life to give us his righteousness. Jesus, who died upon the cross to take our sin. Who rose from the dead to give us hope of heaven. And God offers Jesus to all. Jesus, who gave much more than we could ever repay. Do you believe that? Do you believe that is true for yourself? Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? That why he gave, that what he gives, he gives to you. Turn from your sin and follow him. Christian, we have a very small view of giving. We interpret uh, giving in what I think is minute ways. We lessen our view of what it means to give to dollars. And I suggest that we are, ought not to estimate it by what we get put in the offering plate. Loved ones know that it is more than money that makes someone a generous person. How do we give of our time? How do we give of our ears? How do we give of our hearts? For often this kind of giving is more difficult from us, and we don't add it into the count lest we see the percentages fall. The percentage is really easy with dollars because you can look at uh, income and you can look at giving and you can make a, a, a pretty solid estimate, pretty solid proportion and percentage. But what percentage of our hearts have we given? What percentage of our time have we given? What percentage of our listening have we given? I believe that Paul is challenging us to think in this way. And I'll tell you frankly that it's very convicting even to myself. Let us see how much we have to give and remember the words of the Lord. Let us ask our hearts if we truly believe the words that Paul records of Jesus, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we pray that you would train our hearts in giving, not merely one part of our lives, but all of our lives. Warn our hearts against the danger of pride, the temptation of making disciples to ourselves instead of making disciples for you. Help us to be vigilant, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.